Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Restricting Refugees. There are larger numbers uh, now than before because of global instability in terms of uh, refugees. Uh, that's why we're putting more resources in it. We're also ensuring uh, that the system is fair for everyone. With big changes to the rules for asylum seekers, has the Trudeau government turned its back on its welcome to Canada policy or done the right thing trying to close a loophole? Will this help stem the flow of irregular border crossers? The Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, Bill Blair, joins us today. And then, Phil Potts fight. The Prime Minister's words that night to the Liberal caucus are important to underscore because expulsion should not be his decision to take unilaterally. Former Cabinet Minister Jane Philpott says the Prime Minister broke the law when she was kicked out of caucus. But what's behind her fight? Will she run for another party? Dr. Jane Philpott joins us today for a candid conversation about what really happened in the biggest controversy to hit the government. And then, Alberta votes. Alberta is at a crossroads and it's time to come together. What people want to talk about is who has a plan for job creation. Alberta goes to the polls on Tuesday. What would a Jason Kenney government mean for the next federal election? Former Alberta Premier Alison Redford joins the scrum to weigh in. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. He oversees three of the most controversial files in the government guns, cannabis, and asylum seekers. Since 2017, over 41,000 irregular asylum seekers have crossed the U.S. border into Canada between the legal entry points, mainly at places like Roxham Road in Quebec. Now, these people are then allowed to have an in-person hearing to see if they qualify to stay. But new rules introduced in the budget would change that, and critics say these rules are unconstitutional. To talk about that and if the government will follow New Zealand's example and bring in tougher gun control laws, I'm joined now by the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, Bill Blair. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, Evan. In 2017, Justin Trudeau tweeted out, quote, to those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canada welcomes you, regardless of your faith, diversity, or strength. Welcome to Canada, hashtag. Are these changes in the budget revoking that message, Absol changing it? Absolutely not. And our refugee protection system is predicated on, on principles of fairness and compassion. But Canadians expect us to manage that system efficiently, and they expect us to uphold the rule of law. You, know, you, you quote 2017 statistics, but in the last nine months, we've seen a significant reduction, a 47% reduction in the number of people who've been crossing irregularly. And we're, we've been taking significant steps to invest in improving the efficiency of the IRB processes to determine a, a, a asylum seeker's eligibility for our protection. And we are also taking steps to encourage people who perhaps are not in need of our protection, who, but who wish to emigrate to Canada, to do so in the appropriate so way, the across changes? the appropriate channels. So why channels? change it? So what's the change now? Now someone who crosses that between the legal points, what happens to them? They no longer get an in-person hearing at the Immigration Refugee Board. Why not? Actually, that's not correct, Evan. And, and in fact, what the new regulations state is that for those individuals who have been residing in the United States, for some of them for as long as five years, who've made an application for asylum in the U.S., that they should remain in the U.S. and pursue their asylum claim in that safe country. And, and for those individuals who are fleeing persecution and need the protection of Canada, when they come, they will be entitled to a fair hearing. And in any event, anybody who crosses into Canada as a claimant before before they will be removed from Canada, they will have the benefit of a okay, pre-removal pre risk assessment. It's really important. They'll get a hearing in, 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 in front of a hearing officer and with the benefit of their lawyer. And if they're determined to be at risk, they will receive our protection. Okay, but, but 
refugee lawyers are saying, wait a second, because I want to clarify this. If someone has applied for asylum in the United States, and then they've decided, I'm going to go across the border in Canada, and I'm going to apply there as well. You're saying that they would, the system has not changed from before? I thought now it's a different system for them, that they don't get that in-person yes, hearing. And, it's a and, paper and, hearing. And for those who have already made an application in a safe country, such as the United States, we want them to continue to pursue that application in that safe country. So they don't get a hearing. And, and so they will not be able to claim as well in Canada. They will be able to pursue their claim in the United States. The concern is it violates the Constitution. There is a constitutional decision called the Singh decision I'm that you're well aware of it, of course. right? And that uh, lawyers say your new rules will be challenged because it does not give some people, asylum seekers, a fair hearing when they walk across that border in Canada. And I want to assure those people who have expressed that concern that under the, the new rules, a person who is given a pre-removal risk assessment, they'll have a lawyer present. That'll be done through a hearing, and any determination by that assessment is subject to judicial review. We're very mindful and respectful of the court's decision in saying, and we're going to continue to uphold those rules. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to manage this system according to the rule of law in an efficient way and maintains those, those important principles of fairness and compassion Was for those who need Was it an admission, though, that you failed over the last two years, that, that you hadn't got control of the border, that the Conservatives, who the Conservatives say you've demonized them, that you've called them un-Canadian, and now suddenly you're basically doing an about face and copying part of their recommendation. Is that a fair assessment? No, absolutely not. I completely reject that. And quite frankly, what we heard from some of the conservative critics was, was fear-mongering and, and an attempt to characterize these individuals somehow a risk to the safety and security of Canada. It's mostly kids, Evan, and 40% of the people crossing are children. And so there was no safety issue, but there is a fairness issue. And we have a responsibility to Canadians to ensure that the system is managed in an efficient and fair way. And, and so we have been taking steps to encourage people to cross at a regular point of entry and not to do it irregularly and for anyone who needs our protection I but, want to make but, sure but, they get a timely access to a determination of their eligibility to stay. Amnesty International says you're aligning yourself with Donald Trump's much more odious uh, views on asylum seekers and immigration and that this is a mistake to do that and that in fact that's what you're doing you're changing your tactic and you're you're aligning yourself with Trump. Is Don do you believe for all these people who are walking across our border, do you re regard the United States and their policies now as a safe country for these asylum seekers? No, first of all, let me say I respectfully disagree with, with, um, with, with the characterization that we are adopting an, an, any kind of an odious policy. We're absolutely committed to a compassionate and fair uh, refugee protection system that gives people who need protection, who seek it in Canada, full access to due process, and those who are found to be needing protection, they'll receive it from this country. But let me also uh, uh, tell you that I believe the United States is very much a, a safe country, and it's a country that is governed by the rule of law. Their courts have demonstrated a, a, a very robust willingness to uphold their laws. You know, the UNHCR you has... Have no, you have no concerns about you, Donald Trump and I, what's going on in the southern no, border there? We're not talking about an individual, we're talking about the country. And in the United States, that is a country governed by the rule of law. And I'm not alone in thinking this. UNHCR has also acknowledged that, that the United States is a safe third country. And, you know, almost 45,000 refugees a year believe so too because they go to the U.S. seeking asylum. And, and, and so, quite frankly, I think, you know... Well, 40,000 are coming here because they don't believe the U.S. is a safe place. Well, I think they're coming here because Canada has always been and will always be a welcoming and compassionate country for those who are fleeing persecution. Well, uh, some say that you're changing that message for the election, but last question on this. Have you, are you still negotiating with the United States 
on changing the safe third country agreement. One, one issue would be to turn the entire border into a legal crossing. So if someone crosses anywhere along that border, Canada can turn them back to the United States. I mean, clearly, the safe third country agreement has worked very well for this country since 2004, but we have a number of people who are avoiding its provisions by crossing irregularly. Well, there are discussions now taking place between ourselves and the U.S. in order to modernize and, and, and make uh, more effective that, that agreement between us. And there are a number of so measures that's on under, the table. So there, are that, number of, there are a number of important measures on, under consideration because we have an obligation. But is every, that one of them? Just to we, be clear, is that one of them turning the entire border into a legal port of entry is that on the table you know what and, and, and you know I think that's a gross oversimplification of a very complicated problem and and what we have is people who are choosing not to cross at a regular point of entry and that causes some real challenges for the integrity of our borders and and to the mutual benefit of both countries we think that there are ways in which that can be improved and we are exploring those options with our international partner the United States all of the provisions we've made the investments we've made and the new regulatory changes and the discussions we're having in the United States are all intended to maintain Canadians confidence in our immigration refugee protection system and to ensure that people who need protection receive it from Canada. You got the first handgun consultation results back. Very polarized result. Canadians are not sure whether they want to ban handguns or not. Given what's happened in New Zealand, where they've just banned semi-automatic weapons, you've seen the consultation. Will you be proposing a handgun ban or stricter gun control rules before the next election? I think it was very important, first of all, to listen to the various perspectives of Canadians. I am quite prepared to make recommendations to take measures which will be effective in protecting Canadians and keeping what does us that safe. Mean? Well, and, and, and there are a number of different ways, but I'll, t I'll tell you, there is no one simple measure that, that would solve the problem. There are, but give me one thousand... measure that you're considering. Uh, I mean, uh, I'll like, be happy is to. Is a handgun ban? Is a you ban know, on semi-automatic you know, weapons asked, like they did you've in asked New Zealand? For, you've asked for a measure. Let me share one okay. with you. One of the things that we're seeing is that there's been a significant increase in the theft of firearms, particularly handguns, right across this country from retail stores and from private residents. And so I'm looking very seriously at the regulations with respect to the secure storage of firearms so that we can give firearm owners a very specific um, criteria by which that they will have to abide in order to keep their weapons secure against theft and therefore diversion into the illicit market. There's also significant work that we have to do to enable the police to do a better job being able to detect and therefore deter individuals who would straw purchase. That's purchase guns and then sell them illegally. And, and so there are, I think, some very real measures that are going to be very effective. Are you still open to considering a handgun ban? I'm open to considering any measure that will be effective in keeping Canadians safe. Uh, one thing in New Zealand, they did it quickly. I wouldn't say, no one's saying it's being done quickly in Canada. How soon will we see your recommendations? Well, I, I, I think we have an obligation to Canadians to look at the best evidence, look at the experience in our jurisdictions, speak to Canadians, which we have done, and then f find the steps that will be effective in keeping them safe. Canadians expect us to do whatever the right thing to do is to do it right. You didn't answer the question, though. Are we going to see an answer of your recommendation soon before the election? Well, we have a relatively short uh, window to deal with this. And, 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 and again, I'm quite prepared to, to take any measure that we are able to, that will keep, keep people mean, safe. I mean, are we going to see it before the election? I got to ask you one more time. Well, it doesn't sound like it the way you're answering me. Well, and, and, and what I can tell you that there are there are a number of uh, issues f facing the government. We're working relentlessly, but we take our responsibility to keep Canadians safe. I've heard very clearly from people who are genuinely concerned about gun violence in their communities. They're genuinely concerned about what they see as an increase, and it's undermining their own perception of their own safety and safety in their communities. And we've got a responsibility to act and and and, and to do it right. All right, I got to leave it there. Bill Blair, great to have you. Thank Thanks. you.
All right, coming up, Jane Philpott's fight is far from over. The minister who resigned and then was kicked out of the Trudeau cabinet uh, and the caucus joins us next for a very candid interview about what happened to her and what is next. Stay right here with Question Period. The will of caucus was very, very clear uh, that uh, they wanted uh, the two individuals removed from caucus. It was my decision to make, but uh, the fact that the caucus was uh, clear and united on that uh, made my decision easier. So Jane Philpott, who resigned from her cabinet position over the SNC-Lavalin affair and then was kicked out of the Liberal caucus, is not finished with her fight. She now alleges the Prime Minister broke the law when he unilaterally booted her and Jody Wilson-Raybould out of the caucus. According to new parliamentary rules, of course, expelling members is supposed to be up to the caucus to decide. Parties can opt out of these rules with a vote at the beginning of the parliamentary session, but Philpott claims this didn't happen. The Speaker of the House, however, refused to rule on her claim. So what now? Is Dr. Jane Philpott going to continue on with her battle? Let's find out. Joining me now is Dr. Jane Philpott. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Tough times. It's been difficult. The Speaker ruled against you. You said you alleged that uh, the Prime Minister broke the law when he did not ask caucus to vote to throw you out. Um, the Speaker said he couldn't rule on this. Um, what was your reaction to that? Do you still believe the Prime Minister broke the law? This is not about trying to further cause uh, uh, alarm or trouble for my former colleagues, but this was a, a fundamental principle about due process for members of Parliament and the approach by which they can be expelled. And so it's a matter of the public record that the Liberal Party didn't hold the votes that the law says need to be held to decide whether or not the Prime Minister has the authority to expel or that it is done by a vote of caucus. They, they by the way, press back and say, yes, there is the Canada Parliament Act, but they didn't take the subsequent four votes that would essentially implement it. And then the Prime Minister argued still he had tested the will of caucus. And the will of caucus was goodbye Jane Philpott, goodbye Jody Wilson-Raybould. Right. So, you know, one can argue that the will of caucus was uh, followed in, in the Prime Minister's decision, but the law is quite clear that there shall be four votes. Uh, and as I say, it's a matter of pu public record that the votes didn't occur. So that was that's problematic in and of itself. The outcome probably would have been the same in the end. They would, you think your, your former colleagues probably. would have said, See I, that's you later. the sense I'm, right. I'm getting is that a majority would have probably voted for us to be, have a, be expelled. But this isn't about me. This is about all members of parliament. In particular, I think it's hopefully going to be helpful for future members of parliament that they would have those rights respected and that due process would occur, that those votes would take place at the beginning because we come to Ottawa to represent our constituents. We have to be able to have a fair voice and if one is going to give power to the leader of a party to expel unilaterally, then that should be a decision that members of a party should give to the Prime Minister and it should not be taken unilaterally. Your colleagues have said you're not a team player. You're attention-seeking. I'm quoting some of them. Um, and that when you rose on this point, it was like, let it go. You are, you, the team that you once worked for, you are now actively trying to destroy. And they regard 
the righteousness that you have, and to a certain extent, Jordy Wilson-Raybould, as a mask for what they regard as political naivety. Why would she think we would keep her in a party when she said she has no belief in the integrity and morality of the Prime Minister in an election year? She's openly taken the party down. It's naive to think they would keep you in the party. Well, first of all, thank you for giving me a chance to clarify some of those accusations and, and what I think are misunderstandings. You know, I have, people have said that this is some kind of attention-seeking behavior. You know, I have hundreds of journalists from around the world that want, like yourself, that want to know my opinion on things. So, uh, you know, I would have a choice to potentially muzzle myself and, and never speak when someone sticks a microphone in my face or never respond to, to journalists who are trying to help share stories. Um, but to a certain extent, I need to have opportunities to be able to defend the decisions I've made and to say, this is not about trying to attack the government in any way. I think I've been quite clear about the fact that I wish the Prime Minister the very best, that I, I still fundamentally support the liberal policies and the platform that I ran on but I needed to stand up on a point of principle that uh, I did not receive due process. Go back to the previous what caused the rupture when you decided to stand with Jody Wilson-Raybould the former Attorney General and resign and, and you talked to McLean's magazine and others about it and you said you essentially have lost confidence in the cabinet team. You couldn't sit around there as a point of of principle. Didn't you know at that point that this would be an indictment of the Prime Minister and hurt the, the Liberal Party? I made it very clear that I supported the Prime Minister. I still wish him the very best. I supported the party. I said that right up until the day that I was expelled from caucus. The reason I had to resign from Cabinet is that in Cabinet you have a unique responsibility, something called Cabinet Solidarity, which means that even uh, if you may have had disagreements in the privacy of the Cabinet room, once you go out in front of the world, you have to speak with one mind and, and have solidarity. I would have had then to defend what had taken place when I knew that there was significant evidence of attempts to interfere with a very important criminal trial. I couldn't go out in good conscience and defend that, so I said I'm going to just step down because I'm not satisfied with this particular issue and how it's being dealt with, so my obligation is to step down. I then could have done one of two things. We could have agreed to disagree because it's absurd to think that every caucus member thinks the very same about right. every single issue. Right. And in fact, caucus members have an obligation to hold the government to account and should be free to disagree on on one or two issues as long as we accept the, the broad principles and we agree to support the government in a budget bill, etc. Um, you know, we could have agreed to disagree. I also raised alternate suggestions about, you know, maybe at some point it would be helpful to put this issue aside by saying, you know what, something went wrong, we're sorry, uh, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. That path was never chosen. Did you specifically ask the Prime Minister, we will stay in caucus, Jody Wilson-Raybould or myself, if you simply apologize? From, did, you, did you say that to him? From the day that I resigned from Cabinet on March 4th until the day I was called into the Prime Minister's office on April 2nd, I did not have a single conversation or a single outreach from the Prime Minister. Did you ever try to broker a deal? And did you ever ask any members of the Prime Minister's office or the Prime Minister if they, if the Prime Minister would fire, let go, or move members of his inner circle 
that you and Jody Wilson-Raybould would stay. Did you ever ask someone to be removed from office? So once again, I want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to clarify that because I think that part of that story from uh, leaks, uh, presumably from the Prime Minister's office to various news outlets, um, are, are just that. They were leaks. The conversations that may have been associated with any of that from my part, and I can't speak for the former Attorney General, are conversations that were a matter of cabinet confidentiality, and I'm not at liberty to be able to, to share my so version of that. that. Because well, we've heard that, that Jody Wilson-Raybould, and frankly, sources have told me that you also said, got to remove this person and this person, and then we'll come back into the fold. That there was some kind of brokerage negotiating going on and, and in this back and forth, the Prime Minister didn't, although Mr. Butts ended up resigning and Mr. Wernick ended up resigning, I understand that. But was it that? I'm just trying to get a sense of I, I'm of happy the to respond as much as I can. And okay. what I will say is I think that the characterization of, of any conversations that may have happened, it is unfair for Canadians to only hear from a leaked source how conversations are characterized. I am not at liberty to be able to share any of those same conversations that may have been leaked to you. Those were private, one-on-one -on -one conversations. I have an oath to the Queen to not tell you what took place in those conversations. Someone else has told you their version of those conversations. I think that's uh, an unfair circumstance to be in. There's nothing much I can do about it, except I would just say that, that Canadians should question when a leaked source only gives one version of what took place. All right, stay with us, because coming up, what's next for Jane Philpott? Will she run for another party? She's clearly far from giving up. Part two of our in-depth interview with Dr. Jane Philpott is up next. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. This is part two of our conversation with the former cabinet minister, Dr. Jane Philpott. Now, you know, in medicine, they say the golden rule is to do no harm. But many of Jane Philpott's former colleagues think she's done just that, badly harmed their chances in the next election. It's an act of betrayal many can't forgive. So what's next? We wanted to find out. Uh, Dr. Philpott, the Justice Committee was shut down, but you told McLean's Magazine that there's lots more to this story Canadians still don't know. Will you actively try to seek another venue to fill in those blanks? You know, everything I uh, do to try to do the right thing in this, Evan, gets uh, kind of misunderstood. And I, at this point, feel like there is no, I don't think there's value in me uh, trying to pursue uh, any way to get any more information out. I think Canadians have enough information to know what took place. But you said there was more to the story. You told well, Paul Wells of McLean's, and it was fascinating. You said there's more to the story. You know what? So now Canadians Does are it? like, okay, is there more or is it done? What I will say is that I think there is enough information out there already on the public record for Canadians to see and judge for themselves what they believe happened as to whether or not the evidence points to attempts to interfere in a criminal trial. Jane Philpott, when the Prime Minister stood up, when, the, when this story broke and said this story is false, was he telling the truth? I think that those statements need to be measured against the evidence that is now on the public record. Was it a truthful statement? Well, there were specific allegations in the Globe and Mail that were for later borne out uh, through testimony at the Justice Committee to have actually taken place. Could you, if you were not kicked out, right now, could you vote for Justin Trudeau? 
as leader of the party. Yeah, and I, I'm not one of his constituents. Well, so. no, I understand that, but, uh, but Andrew Scheer is out there saying he's lost the moral authority to govern, he should resign. Has Justin Trudeau lost the moral authority to lead the country? I have an enormous amount of respect for our Prime Minister. I think he has done an incredible job leading this country, has moved it forward in positive, many positive ways. I have some decisions to make in the next few weeks as to whether or not I will uh, run again federally. At the moment, the door is closed for me running as a liberal. I have been approached by people of other parties uh, and am weighing those options. So uh, my vote in the upcoming federal election is uh, not yet decided. Let's talk about that. Have the NDP formally approached you and asked you to be a candidate? I have had conversations. With them. And has the Green Party as well? Yeah. Yes. Both, both the Greens and the NDP have approached you. Are, is, is it something you're seriously considering? Are those options that, of course they're happening, but Jane Philpott, are you seriously considering running either for the Greens, the NDP, or the Conservatives? I, what I've said up to now is that I have not closed any doors. I have a range of options, obviously. I could leave politics altogether and go back to doing do medicine do that? or something. You know, I, there are moments when I'm very tempted to do that because this has not been a particularly pleasant experience of recent weeks. Uh, but you know what? Two, two reasons why I'm seriously considering running again. One uh, is that I stood up and said what I believed, tried to advance the truth, tried to stand up on principle and say that I was concerned about something and was a essentially pushed away as a result of that. Um, if people that are trying to do the right thing and standing up for truth and justice get pushed away and leave politics forever, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. So I, I'd like to think that I could stay at it. And the second thing is that, you know, I need to listen to my constituents and my family, but my constituents are telling me that they still want me to represent them. And so if there's some other path that I can find, um, I will be sitting down with um, my volunteers and many others doing some door knocking over the next couple of weeks, hear what people say, if they would support me again, and if so, under what uh, banner. So okay, we'll, so I'll let you know. You're seriously considering green or... NDP. I can, also, I can also run as an independent. I, I wouldn't at this point. Uh, okay, I think it, there are too many policy differences uh, with the conservatives. Or an independent. Given what's happened, given what Justin Trudeau said, do you have any regrets now? Think you know what? We could have brokered something. We could have done this differently. It didn't have to end like this. Yeah. Is there any? Was there any way for this not to end with you kicked out of the caucus? Well, let me first of all clarify. There were no serious attempts to broker a resolution to this. So that should be clear. There were no on, on my attempts? part. On my part, for I can't speak for Prime Mr. Minister Wilson Raybould. No, nobody said, "Hey, maybe we'll, we've got a difference of opinion." Majority Wilson Raybould. Nobody said, "Jane Philpott, come on in, figure it out. Maybe you can stay." Nothing. No. That's surprising. That's the truth. There were con I had very kind colleagues, former liberal colleagues, who called me. I had, you know, probably half a dozen people that I had phone calls with. But you didn't. And, and, I, and before you were kicked out, you didn't have. Didn't you raise? I know you can't talk about Canada, but didn't you raise it and say, guys, they, we're going to walk out the door if you don't fin fix this? You didn't speak truth to power in cabinet to the Prime Minister saying, this is a breaking point, you're going to lose a couple ministers here. I had conversations before I resigned from right. cabinet to attempt uh, to 
uh, see if there was a way that I wouldn't have to resign. Those I can't give details of those, but there, at that stage, up and up right. into the March fourth, there were conversations um, of what might have made it possible for me to not have to resign. But from the time of resignation until the time uh, of being kicked out of caucus, there were I, I did not have any conversations with the prime minister. So on the regret. On the regret, I mean, I regret that the whole thing going back to the fall of 2018 happened. I mean, that would have been awesome if, if those that series of uh, attempts to influence the former AG had never happened. That would have been the, the best case scenario. Um, I regret that the shuffle took place. I don't regret that I stepped down from cabinet because I have to, at the end of the day, live with myself, live with my, my children and be able to say I did the right thing. I you know, of course I would have loved to stay on as a cabinet minister. It was an amazing opportunity and I felt I had something to contribute there. But I couldn't do so if it meant that I had to go out and talk to people like you and not speak what I thought was the truth. I gotta leave it there. Jane Philpott, I may see you after October. We'll find we'll out. We'll see. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank you. It. All right, coming up. Is the Prime Minister's notice to sue Andrew Scheer for defamation a libel, a smart political strategy, a real legal issue, or just a sign of desperation? The Scrum is next to take on that and the controversial new changes to the asylum-seeking laws. Stay right here with Question Period. I think uh, highlighting that there are consequences um, short term and long term when politicians choose to uh, twist the truth and distort uh, reality for Canadians. It's not something we're going to put up with. I call on Justin Trudeau to follow through and immediately tell Canadians when court proceedings will commence. So did the Prime Minister's threat to sue Conservative leader Andrew Scheer for libel and defamation over comments Scheer made about the SNC-Lavalin affair backfire? Was it a political error prolonging the SNC story? After all, Andrew Scheer immediately, I would almost say gleefully, repeated his statements and practically begged the Prime Minister to follow through on the lawsuit. But politics aside, does the Prime Minister have a fair legal point about defamation? To talk about that and the changes the Liberals are making to the asylum-seeking laws, the scrum is here. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter for the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier is our CTV Ottawa bureau chief. Greg Oliver is CTV's chief political commentator, and he's trademarked that wave. And our special guest today is Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raitt. Great to see everybody on a Sunday morning. Lisa Raitt, let me start with you. Let me just start with the substance yeah. of the Prime Minister's claim, and we'll get to the yeah. politics of it. Substantially, the Prime Minister's lawyer contends that there is, quote, no concrete proof that Justin Trudeau, quote, led a campaign to politically interfere with SNC-Lavalin's uh, criminal prosecution. If, there, if there's no concrete proof, is, do they have merit in this lawsuit? Well, what we're saying is that we stand by, or Andrew stands by, everything that he said in the statement. And the interesting thing about the concrete proof issue is the reason why we don't have more information on this is because the Prime Minister and the Liberal members of every committee that this has gone to has effectively shut down the means of inquiry. So if the Prime Minister is so sure that there's nothing that has happened that's going to lead to the conclusion that he had his hand in all of this, then he should be allowing us to hear about it. And if not, if he wants to shut it down, we can settle this in a, in a court of law where the, all the information will come out so that contention can be properly tested. Of course, there was never any chance of that. I think we all knew that. The Prime Minister was never going to go ahead with this case. 
why I think the question we all asked was, what were they thinking? I mean, didn't they realize what they were handing the conservative leader who had come back and say, wait, let's go for it. Come on out in the alley and we'll settle it uh, there. I mean, that's the mistake the liberals made. And it was one of the many they've made that really hurt them. Uh, Tonda, so on the, uh, the politics of it, it's interesting. Separate the law and the politics. The, the Liberals say there's no concrete proof. They say Mr. Scheer defamed the Prime Minister when he alleges that the Prime Minister personally gave the orders and when the former Attorney General refused to follow them and break the law, he was fired. They say substantially they have a claim. What's your take on the substance of the claim versus the politics of it? Well, it's hard to untangle them, right? Uh, I think that um, on the substance of the claim, um, the the, the, the Prime Minister is trying to put forward the fact that you can't state falsehoods and lies in public about what he did. He's relying on the fact that Jody Wilson-Raybould herself said nothing illegal happened. And for Andrew Scheer to go out in public and baldly state he, he breached every rule in the book by politically interfering in a criminal prosecution. I mean, those two statements can't be reconciled. Uh, but you can't untangle it from the politics yeah. because, in fact, like Craig said, it gave the Conservatives carte blanche to talk about the whole thing for another uh, week or more. Um, but I don't see the Prime Minister intent on following through with the lawsuit. And then does he risk politically looking like Andrew Scheer gets to claim, see, we told you yeah. they are, are guilty of something. And, and George, they might as well have FedExed an attack ad to the Conservatives when Justin Trudeau said there's consequences when you don't tell the truth. And then Andrew Scheer went out and said, well, what about balancing the budget? And he began to list yes. Justin Trudeau's broken promises. It seemed like he was sort of handing them a bludgeon to hit him with. It's incomprehensible why when the story is dying down uh, and, you know, the story is out there. Even Jane Philpott says, look, mm. the facts are out there. Right. People will decide for themselves. So decide. the players, the main players are already saying that there, is there more to this story? No. Is there enough to this story? Yes. These are the facts. Canadians will judge for themselves. And then the prime minister does this, and people go, okay, so, like, maybe shut up would be a good thing. So, You're Craig, really in the end, strategic the, error, doesn't matter the, the substance of it, yeah. this is a, a, a fundamental strategic error by the prime minister? They really believed, I think, that they could muzzle the conservative leader. Uh, and instead, Trudeau was running away from this, and it was a huge embarrassment. Like, I'm afraid to go out and have a fight. Let me move on to the asylum debate, Lisa Rada. I'll start with you. Buried in the omnibus bill something that they once said they would never do, are material changes to the asylum laws. We spoke about this earlier. Ones that would try to forbid accepting people into Canada who have already applied for asylum in other countries. Mm. Uh, Lisa Raitt, is, is this uh, smart for the Liberals to actually listen to some of the criticisms your party has given? Is this a retreat or an admission that they've got it wrong before? Or would your party say, you know what, we support this? Well, it's very curious that they're bringing it up now as we roll into an election. Clearly, they've heard the messages that we've been hearing from our constituents for the past two and a half years, that there is great concern about the method by which people are coming across the border in the non-border entry points. And they've put some material in an omnibus bill to see whether or not they're going to be able to help it. But how do you roll back 
the accusations that have been made continuously against conservatives and anybody who indicated that they were uncomfortable by the way in which this was rolling out. I look at Lisa McLeod. I mean, the Minister of Immigration, Citizenship and Immigration, said that she was un-Canadian because she said the federal government should be paying for all the costs that were that were coming from these illegal border crossers. And now we have a situation where they're putting in a fix that they think needs to fix. They, they said there wasn't a problem before, but now suddenly they have a fix. They caused this problem. We'll see whether or not this actually solves it. But what we need to have in this country is fair, compassionate, and orderly immigration. And some policy is going to have to get us there. And, and, and arguably, this is a fix that they could have brought in two years ago when they started facing the onslaught of people coming across the border at Roxham Road and in Emerson, Manitoba. Uh, this is a policy thing that could have been addressed in committee, debated, yes, have absolutely. the refugee advocates come forward and talk about the implications of it. And now we have it tossed in when there's seven weeks left in the legislative session. Uh, very little chance for a real good debate on it. And it's going to now form the backdrop because Canada is negotiating with the United States on the whole safe third country agreement. And so it is a, such a necessary debate. Uh, the weather is getting better, so the problem mm -hmm. will come back now, right? It was such a necessary debate. Why bury it in a budget bill? You know, it's, it's the lack of transparency on this because this is a ballot issue. This is something that people talk about. It's not a, it is a complex issue, but it's something that affects us all, that people are talking about, that we're insulting each other over, and they bury it in a, in a, in a budget bill. Why not exactly do it a year ago, put it on the table, and say, okay, let's be open about it, and they would not have had a problem. The premise of uh, sort of policy on immigration in Canada and the United States has always been that we are equally humane, we respect human rights. That's not true in the United States anymore. They've become totally xenophobic. It's tragedy what's going on on the border down there. And so a lot of the people who are trying to get into the U.S. now, uh, who are being rejected as asylum seekers, are going to be coming into Canada. And what we're doing is, while the Americans are building walls, we're now building virtual walls. We are making it more difficult will this for hurt? those will, people will this to hurt? find sanctuary okay, well, here. Craig, last word. Will this hurt Justin Trudeau on the progressive flank? And is that the right thing to do, really, uh, ultimately? I, you know, that's a good question, and I, I don't know the answer to it. All right, uh, let me take a short break. We, we've got to leave it there. Lisa Raid, fascinating stuff. Uh, great to have you as our special guest on the Scrum today. Thank you. The Scrum, the rest of the Scrum is going to stick around. Coming up, Tuesday is Election Day in Alberta. What a wild election there. Who will the province choose? What impact will it have on the rest of the country and the federal election which is coming up? The Scrum returns our special guest that time will be on uh, Alberta, former Alberta Premier Alison Redford. Stay right here with Question Period. We don't need a premier and a government that is consumed and distracted by an RCMP investigation into themselves. We have a government with the worst economic record in modern Alberta history since the Great Depression. Well, the sludge slinging and bitumen bickering in Alberta is ramping up as voters there head to the polls on Tuesday. Both leaders are pushing their plans for the economy pipelines and the fundamental issue of trust. Can Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley come from way behind in the polls and surprise everyone with a big win again? Or will Jason Kenney 
become the next premier of Alberta. And what will all this mean to the next federal election as issues like the carbon tax and pipelines are so relevant? To talk about that and the controversy over a $12 million grant to help Loblaws install new fridges, let's bring back the scrum. Tonda McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver, and our special guest this round is the former Alberta premier, Alison Redford. All right, uh, Alison Redford, I'll start with you. Key issues driving this election in Alberta. Let, what, what's going on there? Well, I think that Jason Kenney wants to talk about the economy, and I think that Rachel Notley wants to talk about trust. Uh, I think that if you look at some of the economic issues that are coming up, whether it's pipeline or carbon tax, that there isn't actually a lot of difference between how the two of them would deal with this in the long run and what the outcome would be. But Albertans are feeling very uncertain right now. They're very frustrated by the fact that our economy looks different than it used to. And I think that's enough of a message that's been able to distract from some of the social conservative problems that Jason Kenney's had. And uh, it's going to be a tough election for, uh, for Ms. Notley on Tuesday. Uh, and because they're both going for the same thing, they both say the pipeline, they're both talking about the economy, Jason Kenney's very smartly running against Ottawa, it seems, more than against his rival in Alberta. So seen from the outside, when you listen to him, you think he's running against Justin Trudeau. He's not running against Rachel Notley. But running against Ottawa may be exactly what Trudeau exactly. needs. Uh, because uh, if Jason wins, and most of us think he will, uh, that will be a solid phalanx of conservatives in power from the Alberta border to the Quebec border and the national leader of the Conservative Party too. Uh, wouldn't the Prime Minister love to be in a fight uh, against people he can say are backed by white supremacists, who are against climate, who are basically not very nice people, and he will say this kind of balance of power is not a very good thing. Uh, I think he'll be in a good chance to be seen as the last progressive standing uh, against these guys. That's not a bad but campaign for Trudeau. I think, I think politi politically uh, that might seem appealing to the Prime Minister, just as right now politically it seems appealing to Jason Kenney as well. But I think that um, the prospect of a Jason Kenney win in Alberta also creates bigger problems for Trudeau on the national scene. I think that there are a lot of his policies then are, that are deeply at risk, um, including his climate change plan. And, uh, you know, Jason Kenney promises to bring huge battles to Ottawa yeah. over equalization and the very notion of what it means to be a province within a Canadian federation. So I think that there's a lot more trouble down the line than just politics. And yeah. he's really talking to people. Well, I yeah. think, you know, this reminds me so much of when I was growing up in Alberta and Premier Lougheed was the premier. We had a different Prime Minister Trudeau and we were in sort of very much in these discussions about the nature of confederation. And I think that this, this rising feeling of frustration is back again in Western Canada, which is unfortunate because I don't think we get through these issues when there's this kind of polarization, whether it's from Alberta, Ontario, or Quebec. But I think we're about to enter into a place where the next federal election will be very fractious around these issues that we remember from when we were much younger in it, Canada. It's just so fascinating that Jason Kenney wrote in the, re the West wants in and the Harper mm -hmm. government. Now he's running basically the West wants out, which is kind of fascinating. But you're right. He's threatened to cut off oil to British Columbia over the mm -hmm. pipeline. He's threatened to renegotiate the issues of equalization and then the carbon tax. Let, just speaking of carbon, just as a segue, uh, Craig, I'll start mm -hmm. with you. Um, 
the minister, let's call it the minister's choice, like a pun on the president's choice. Minister Catherine McKenna had this announcement where $12 million for Loblaws will go to Loblaws to install low emission fridges. Now, it is part of a low carbon economy leadership fund, which has about $2 billion for clean technology. And Loblaws also has to invest $36 million as a partnership. But the Liberals have been criticized for giving $12 million to a profitable company that opposed minimum wage owned by the richest family in Canada. And what are the optics Made hundreds of millions in, yeah. uh, in profit, uh, got nailed by the federal government over the uh, bread uh, scandal and also by CRA over offshore banking. So they're not a, really a sympathetic uh, company right now to a lot of Canadians. So uh, as in the, fo- the famous uh, uh, lawsuit against uh, Scheer, you got to ask yourself, what were they thinking when they had a news conference there and said, great news, we're giving millions of dollars to this company, Loblaws? I think, I think it's funny because, again, this government has been up to, I would say, last December, really great around symbols and emblems of things. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, since really December, since their clash with China over the Hmong Wanj- they seem to be putting their foot wrong on so many levels and not getting the symbolism of a lot of what they're saying. And they're coming off as, I think, tone deaf again and again on so many things. And, and you know, it's the rollout that is strange because, you know, why not start with the fact that Loblaws did it? Look, I'm not defending the fact that we're giving $12 million to a huge corporation, which is, you know, incomprehensible to most people. So why not just explain that actually it's $35 million that the company is spending and then getting $12 million? But there are a lot of small grocers that haven't had this grant because it is very complicated and it is also very costly to to get through the paperwork and get this grant. Alison Redford, I mean, they didn't have to do it in this format. They could have done an accelerated capital cost allowance. And there's lots of other incentives that may not have the symbolic resonance of this. What's your take on it? Well, I I think that that's that's correct. And when I first saw the story, it took me back to why you would make that policy choice anyway and why you wouldn't if you were focusing on trying to get businesses to make smart decisions to come up with something that wasn't a grant format. Grants are complicated to apply for. You know, on top of everything that we've just talked about, it's much more likely that a company like Loblaws is going to have the technical capacity to submit the paperwork for that grant. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's really problematic. And the other thing, quite honestly, is I don't know why we would have had to have the government make that announcement in Ottawa when there's grocery stores right across the country that probably have already been successful in getting these grants, maybe not $12 million, but highlighting some of those stories to talk about how the government of Canada is supporting middle-class Canadians and small businesses would have been a much better message. All right, uh, I got to leave it there. It's just, it's just fascinating, as you say, Tonda, what the messaging on the, some of these fundamental policies as always now uh, suffused with so much controversy. Got to leave it there. So much to talk about. Alison Redford, thank you for joining us. Tonda McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig thank Oliver, you. always great to see all of you on the Scrum. And thank you for watching our program. Try to enjoy a beautiful spring. Yeah, it's kind of spring. We'll be back here in seven short days.